there's the other one. The one with the yellow cloak. Fuck you! Those are your last words. Fuck you. Come on, you can do better. Cunt! You're shit at dying, you know that? <laughs> oh my god, there's dragons. You gotta watch it. You see them, there's this fight scene with his hair. And some of them really small. Winter is counting. I'm helpless. The guy that was just using his own arm. I see what he did. Watch your ass. He did. Now they're using amazing guys. What a guy or a girl? I cannot give you back your homes or restore your dead to life, but perhaps I can give you justice in the name of our Dracaris. Welcome back to the Coffee Clatch Crew Game of Thrones episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we're reviewing episode eight, No One. No One. <laughs> Directed by Liked Mark. Liked this episode. Sorry. <laughs> Directed by Mark Millard and written by Benioff and Weiss. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a seven out of 10. I think that might go to show you it wasn't the greatest episode Game of Thrones has ever had. We'll just start out by saying that much. It wasn't. But. I'm not all hate here. I did have a lot of good uh, points in this uh, episode that I enjoyed, so we will get into that. It's not going to be a hate fest. No, we'll talk about both. I think it's only fair. Popular opinion is that there are certain parts of the episode a lot of people are upset about, myself included, so we have to mention those things and go over them. We'll talk about the good things, too. Let's start out with some fun facts, get it started on a light note. (laughs) There was quite a few callbacks in this episode. I might not even have caught them all. So if I miss them, please write in and tell me about it. But the ones that we did look to were, they were really fun. There was two from the hound alone. One of the humorous ones is when he said he would have preferred to eat chicken. Do you remember that callback, Jason? No. <laughs> it's the infamous line where he meets Polliver in the... I don't know, if it's an inn where uh, he takes Arya and she winds up getting her first kill. But before that, he says he's going to have to eat every fucking chicken in the room. Oh, that's right. Yes. yes. <laughs> Everybody's favorite line from Game of Thrones. So this was a callback to that. Then you also had him saying, I believe in that same scene, I've had tougher girls than you try to kill me. Yep. And of okay. course, he's referencing both presumably Arya and Brienne. In the scene where we see Beric, he says, the cold winds are rising in the north. I love this. Could be a callback to the warning in Gior Mormont's letter to the small council back in the beginning of season two, where he wrote to them to say that undead men and worse things were stirring beyond the wall. You have Bronn with several great one-liners. One of them is where he is referencing Pod and his magic cock. (laughs) And this, of course, is the callback to season three, where Podrick apparently impressed the three prostitutes so much. Finally, I remember that, yes. Perhaps the most meaningful, you have Jamie saying, the things we do for love, when he's talking to Edmure Tully. This was his infamous quote of season one, which he said to Cersei before he threw Bran out the window. Okay. Yep. That's true. And uh, Bran... It was, uh, yeah, they said magic cock, but the, I think what it was was, like, he was more interested in pleasing the girl than the guys 
than other guys were, especially back then. I'm sure they didn't care about that. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think someone like Braun can understand that. So to, to him, it's like, yeah. oh, you got to have some magic under there. Yeah. It was more... <laughs> really fun <laughs> duo. I don't, I don't quite know um, what the point that was, a fun scene. was of having them do that training that he was giving to Pop, but I was glad somebody was finally paying attention to him and training him the way he was supposed to be as a squire. Uh, I think the point is, well, there's two points. One, we had two, in this episode, we had two points where there was some kind of uh, relief in the dread, mm. and that was with our dwarf friend. And tell us a joke, which mm -hmm. we'll get to. And that was also this scene. But uh, so that was one of the reasons is like, uh, especially as these seasons go on now, it's going to get darker and darker, I think. But also, I believe it's because he's going to be more important later on. And they're kind of rem reminding us who he is because we haven't seen him. Oh, absolutely. No one's paid attention to him. He will be more important in the episodes coming up. Absolutely. Well, I said the same thing about Sam. And I know Sam is a little bit more of a main character, but... The amount of time we're getting with Pod, just the fact that he's here this yeah. many seasons later, and mm -hmm. Braun as well, you have to believe they're going to keep playing a role. And it's nice to see in the quiet moments that there are still things kind of worth living for. Oh, yeah. You know, you can have a happy, lighthearted moment here and there. Especially Braun. I mean, it's not like he's had a great life. <laughs> he's had to fight for everything he has. Literally. <laughs> But still finds humor. It's in been tough for Pod too, I must say. Yeah, I mean, it's been tough for everyone, especially back then. But I say back then like it's real time. <laughs> um, I don't think Pod's had uh, that rough of a life compared to a lot of other characters. Our title meaning no one obviously largely applies to Arya and the quest that she finishes up in Bravos this episode. Who else do you think this could apply to? No one. Yeah. I mean, their episode titles definitely have been a little more on the nose and maybe not as far-reaching throughout episodes and characters and scenes the way they were in previous seasons. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they're even still trying to do that as much, incorporate it as a subtle thing. I, really, for me, I saw it perhaps being directed towards the Hound and the fact that he tried to shed his old self his old character and persona he tried mm -hmm. to become somebody new now he's back to that i don't really know that was the closest analogy i can make but i didn't but, yeah. really see it applying anywhere else i think it's a stretch because i also see if you're going to talk about the hound i see it as his struggle to try to be no one and right right away he's thrust back into the storyline mm -hmm. as far as the game of thrones storyline um the battle for the thrones and he's going to be a pivotal part he's not allowed to he's not allowed to be no one in our title sequence, we see, I think, the same locations as last time. Westeros gives us King's Landing, River Run, Winterfell, and The Wall. And in Essos, we have Bravos and Marine. Not seen in this episode, again, a lot of characters. So we are doing more of a deep dive into the few characters that we do get on screen in the episode. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot that we don't see. This time it was Bran and Company, Jon and Sansa, Davos and Melisandre, Ramsay and the Northmen. Rickon, you still don't know what's happening with him. Littlefinger, Marjorie, Sam and Gilly, Theon and Yara, and Jorah. Mingia. Yeah. I'm so glad we haven't seen Ramsay. We haven't seen him in like four episodes. Yeah, we're glad we haven't seen Ramsay, but in thinking about the fact that we also have not seen Rickon, it makes me a little nervous as to what's going on with him. 
That's a long mm-hmm. time that he's been captured now. Yeah. Ugh, I don't know. Well, this season especially, and certain episodes in the other past seasons, they've had to go further in depth with characters and spend more time and not and leave out a lot other a lot of other ones. One because they're still spread out, so every storyline needs time for you to like figure out where they are, where they're mm-hmm. at. And also because we're getting down to the nitty gritty, so it's no longer like little things that are happening with each character. Now it's all pivotal. They're all meaningful. Yeah. And I love that. I do love seeing more of the background of characters, the history of where they've been, developing their arcs more. What I don't love is after that development, feeling like things happen with a character that don't make a lot of sense or that they're doing things that are out of character. Because if you're going to spend so much time giving us that inside look and trying to get a little bit truer to perhaps George's storyline and what he intended for these people, if they then do things that really don't feel right to us with no explanation, I think that's where the frustration comes in. Yeah. And, you know, I'm mainly talking about Arya's storyline here and we will get there. But there were even other areas where I was confused. Blackfish. With the development of things. So um, I'd like to keep that as a running topic throughout the episode. We can also mention the deaths that we had because there were quite a few potentially blackfish, although that was off screen. I'm not going to give that a definitive yet. You had a few unnamed faith militant that the mountain got a hold of. You had seven former Brotherhood members, including the three that were hanged, Lady Crane, and of course, the Waif. For new faces and places, we don't actually have either of those, but we do have two things, (laughs) maybe that need a little more explaining. The first is Trial by Seven. You did mention this uh, a couple episodes ago. Yeah, I brought it up, actually, as a theory for what the High Sparrow could be up to and how Cersei could face trouble. So? (laughs) I'm right and I'm wrong. That's the interesting thing about this. I kind of had a feeling that Cersei was going to have her trial by combat denied. It was very clear to everybody that she's been creating this mountain monster. You know, Kyburn has gotten her Sir Robert Strong Mm -hmm. to be her ultimate bodyguard avenge all her enemies anybody with half a brain could see she was going to choose him for her trial i think part of the high sparrow's plan all along was to find a way of stripping the power from the people that he wants to deny it to starting with cersei and gain control over the people he can manipulate yeah who have power and one of the ways he can do that clearly is by getting into Tommen's ear and influencing him to say there will be no more trial by combat. Now, this is a way that many of men have gotten out of, you might say, having to pay for their sins. If they can find a man who's strong enough and good enough in battle to champion them, mm-hmm. they can win. And I think it's been suggested by certain religious people, oh, does this really mean that the gods favor you, though? So the High Sparrow is taking away her ability to choose that. Now, in the books, Trial by Seven meant a little something different. It was actually just a variation of Trial by Combat. Very rarely, the accused might demand to have this type of trial, where two teams of men, of seven men, would fight each other. So seven men on each side. The accused might choose six men and then also join themselves, or they could choose a seventh man as their personal champion. And it only ended when all seven men on one side had been defeated. 
The Andals, who first started this tradition, believed that the gods thus honored in this way would be more likely to see justice done. You know, there were seven gods, you should have seven champions. And if a man couldn't find six other people to stand with him, it was automatically assumed he was guilty. Mm -hmm. That was a clean, easy way to go about that. However, in the TV show, we see it meaning something different, at least according to the High Sparrow. He talks about these ecclesiastical trials of the faith of the seven, which traditionally included judgment by seven septons. And apparently this was something that the faith lost, a right that they lost under the Targaryen rule. To where we were questioning, what are they getting back here? What kind of power is the High Sparrow after, other than being armed, because the faith militant was already a thing, perhaps this is something else. How many traditions is he going to kind of pull out of the rule book now and say, oh, we used to do this back in the day? Yeah. So I don't know where you get these seven septons from. I don't know if they're all going to be his men. Quite clearly, this is a way to just find her guilty. I assume that we're going to find Loras guilty as well, and very convenient for Marjorie that she doesn't have to stand trial anymore of this deal she's made. We have yet to see what her plans are. So that's a trial by seven. And then another thing that was brought up by Arya that seemed perhaps a little bit out of place, in one of her scenes, she said she would like to travel west of Westeros. Yeah. She said, what's out there? What is it as far as you can go that nobody really knows about? This was actually spoken of in the books as well. She's speaking of an area called the Sunset Sea, which is on the western side of Westeros, kind of where we were looking on the map last episode. We were talking about Bear Island and those things on the western coast. Mm -hmm. If you go out even a little bit further than that, that whole body of water is the Sunset Sea. Now, beyond that, there's a couple of little islands that people have discovered. They seem to know in the books that the world is round and that theoretically you would be able to reach Essos if you just kept going far enough uh, across that sea, but nobody has actually managed to cross it. Even if you look, the Iron Islands are just off the western shore, and even with their great mariners, they have never discovered anything beyond. Travelers always just find an endless ocean with no hint of land. One of the most famous explorers that went traveling the Sunset Sea was King Brandon Stark. He sailed west with most of the northern fleets to find new lands and was never seen again. His son, Brandon the Burner, burned the remaining ships in grief, and since then, the North has not really had any strength at sea. Hmm. That's how we lost our fleets. Do you think she really meant that? Because that would be a testament of giving up if she just went west of west. I think it was probably a passing fancy. Yeah. I wonder if it was a kind of nod towards book readers, how George has himself said, nobody really knows what's out there. He's also talked about these other areas in the Far East, such as Ashai, that we wondered if characters would go to. Now it seems we're running out of time. We will never get to actually explore these regions. Unless they do another show. Maybe sometime in the future, future books. Um, maybe George will find a way to work it into his remaining books. I don't think we're going to see it on the TV show, though. All right, let's jump into our overview, our first location being the Riverlands, where the Hound tracks down some of the Brotherhood. So these are the guys we see sitting around a campfire, sort of just joking about sex, and the Hound comes in, he brutally kills them, he's looking for their leader. He then comes across Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Myrrh, who are preparing to hang the men responsible for the village attack. 
turns out we were questioning why are they behaving so differently than they're supposed to? The Brotherhood was started. Their whole goal is to protect small folk. Now it seemed as though they were raiding them in the episode with Brother Ray and the Hound. Yeah. They're at least saying that this wasn't them, that yep. this faction is a bunch of rogues that broke off seven men and are doing their own thing, and they were here to hang them themselves. However, they will not l- allow the Hound to brutalize them. Right. They will grant him two men, but he is only allowed to hang them the way they were prepared to. Yes, and I just want to add a... Because last episode, you said this doesn't make sense. The uh, Brotherhood without banners, this isn't how they are. Who are these people? Are they pretending to be the Brotherhood? So I just want to say that these scenes with the Hound are my favorite scenes of this episode. He's such a badass. I love the way he comes in. He's a blur in the background. Just comes in and just starts fucking people up. And people, you should listen to, just go to like HBO Go. Go to that scene. Listen to the sound effects they use when he's hacking them. They're they're like over the top, which is amazing. Didn't you feel a bit conflicted though? It was like, wow, this is great. It's great to see him sort of fucking people up in this way and Mm -hmm. getting back onto it. And then you're like, well, wait, but we don't really want him to be that person, though. We really wanted to see him have this change and be able to be somebody different. And it's so sad that he's immediately right back to that guy. So I was kind of intrigued when following this, Beric and Thoros asked him to come with them. Yeah. They said they were headed to the north to fight White Walkers and they could use a good man, somebody like him. I loved that. Me too. Well, there's, there's two things that we figure out. We're not going to have a... Uh, I forgot what they call it on the internet. Basically, him fighting his brother. Yes, the Clegane Bowl. Yeah, the bowl. Um, which is fine, because I wasn't interested in that. Because I knew that Hound is probably going to die if they did that. Also, um, one thing I, was, I kept thinking about, just to back it up a little bit, mm-hmm. is we, or they... And we, because we like the Brotherhood Without Banners, are really lucky that the Hound came in mm-hmm. on them hanging mm-hmm. these people. Because let's say he came a little later and they were already hung and they're put away, whatever you do to dead bodies. Yep. He would not believe them. He would have just started hacking the shit out of everybody. And think that it's the whole Brotherhood yep. who's up to that. Yeah. So they are very lucky that he walked in on that. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just this one circumstance. If you go back to the first time we saw a run-in between the Brotherhood and the Hound, mm-hmm. they were putting him on trial for his past sins that he had committed. Right. And he chose trial by combat, and he had to fight Beric. He actually killed Beric. So this is another one of the resurrections that Thoros had yeah. to bring him back for the seventh time because Sandor won his trial. He was allowed to go free, however when he asked for his money back that he had on him when they ran into each other, they wouldn't let him take it. Right. So he was pissed, and that's when he returned later, and we wind up having Arya go with him. He pretty much steals her so that he can ransom her back to her family. But there's been bad blood ever since then. It was kind of surprising. It was really nice to see them very quickly get almost on the same page with each other, where they're forgiving and forgetting, and you can see the hound's wheels turning Mm -hmm. about their mission and what they're about and perhaps he kind of likes the idea of it and when they talk about going north you wonder could he do this could he change now but in a different way 
So he can't be nobody wandering around in this hippie no. village for the rest of his life. That's not going to happen. But this is a mission that he might be able to follow and do some good. I think so. Do you think he'll go? I'm really hoping that he does because, like you said, even if we don't get this epic battle of a showdown for a trial by combat in King's Landing, the mountain versus the hound. I think if he doesn't go with them, mm -hmm. he's still going to seek his brother out and it still will wind up in a fight of some sort. And I think you do see him dead in that circumstance. Yeah. Um, let's not forget that we saw penis penis shot in the first scene where he approaches those guys, right? The other brotherhood guys. Oh, no, not even that. They give him a drink of water when they're all sitting, mm -hmm. hanging out, and then he goes to the lake, and he just pulls it out. Oh, to go pee. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And I just kept thinking of Amelia Clark, who plays Danny, on a talk show. She says, you know, I, I don't have an issue with being naked. I just wish that they would, you know, let the men get naked, too, and show some of that. It wasn't equal between genders. Yeah. Well, this was kind of really far away, though. You couldn't really see anything. It was almost a bit blurred out. I don't know. You kind of saw it just plop out. <laughs> no, it wasn't a close-up, no. Uh, also, I love I love the banter between, and excuse me, um, it's probably annoying for our listeners that I never know names, but uh, the dude that is always reborn. or uh, Beric. And the guy with the nice ponytail. The priest, tail. that's Thoros. Those two, they're good together. I like the way... They uh, have a great companionship. Yeah. yeah. I'm I kind of that. wondering, we haven't seen them since season three. What do you think they've been up to? Just this? Continue yeah. to go on their mission and protect the small folk? Yeah. But how did these other guys, there was like six or seven, why did they leave them? There's potentially this really great storyline that they're setting you up for with okay. an introduction of a new character. And it explains what's happened to this faction of the Brotherhood that's sort of broken off and is going in a darker direction. Okay. It's a character that we were thinking because the introduction hasn't been made for so long, we're never going to see them. Impossible. Now they brought you up to that. You're almost assuming there's no other way to account for it. And then... That character doesn't show up this episode. Okay. So I'm wondering what's going to happen. I feel like either you see them in the next episode or that's it. Dead and done. And then we can discuss maybe at the end of this season who that person was. Okay. I don't think that's it because the hound, is, that's not it for the hound. Can't be. Yeah, I mean the rogue group. If it turns oh, out the they group. don't go back okay. to it and... We just assume, yeah, that was a couple of people that were bad apples, and that's the end of it. If they continue to go into that storyline, then we will see this character. Now, what I'm thinking is I wouldn't even bring it up if it was one or two of them mm -hmm. that had separated. But the fact that they mentioned seven people going off on their own, it's a little bit strange. Now you're starting to talk about a movement, a faction of people, yeah. that, that there's got to be something more to it. Especially since they're not that deep in people. Yep. don't have that many people. Also interesting to note, we talk about how a lot of things happen differently in the books. The whole storyline of the Riverlands, the Hound, Brienne and Pod, there's a lot of things that we don't get to see on the show. One small thing is that a character named Roars had stolen the Hound's custom helmet. It was shaped like a snarling dog's head. This man had turned bandit. He was doing horrible deeds. And because he was doing it, wearing the Hound's helmet... Mm -hmm. People were thinking that it was the hound oh, going around and terrorizing the Riverlands. 
And it wasn't until this man was killed by the Brotherhood and Brienne that we find out it really wasn't him underneath there. So continuing on in the Riverlands, we'll go to River Run, where there was a couple of scenes, really intense things happening here. First, Brienne and Pod arrive where they reunite with Jamie and Bronn. That's where we see the fun scene between Bronn and Pod. This is what I mistook for Pod being kidnapped. Okay. During that clip of the upcoming. Where he gets choked. They're so sneaky with how they put things in where Mm -hmm. you just see an arm come around him and start to (laughs) choke him out. So you have some funny banter here. The one thing to note is that Jamie picks up on the tension, the attraction that's happening between Jamie and Brienne. Whether that's sexual or not, he seems to think it is because he has noticed it. And he is thinking that they'll get together. Bron? Yeah, he says, Jamie and Brienne, if they're not already fucking in there, you know, like, Pod's kind of like, really? Is that what you think is going on? He's like, absolutely, (laughs) it's going to happen. The ugliest woman in the show has two people that love her. Now, I don't think they're ever going to wind up sleeping together in love the way we think of it people are saying we ship it like they're going to be a couple i think it's more complicated than that and if you go to the books there was this really complex relationship of what was happening between the two of them and i think it has a lot to do with mutual respect and the kind of people they are warriors and fighters and what's right what they see in each other that really comes to light in this episode. So you see Brienne go and talk to Jamie, and she explains that she's come to recruit the Blackfish and the Tully army for Sansa. Jamie tells her he's currently besieged and refusing to surrender the castle. And that's when Brienne proposes to go in and talk to the Blackfish to parlay, see if she can get him to surrender. And if he will give up the castle, then Jamie will allow safe passage for the Tully army to go north. He says she has until nightfall to get this deal done. And as she's walking out, she tries to return the sword to him, Oathkeeper. He tells her it's hers forever. And that, that's, that when you have scene. a handful of Valyrian steel swords floating around the kingdom, it's a huge deal to say, no, this is yours. Handful? Pun intended? <clears throat> this ends with Brienne going in, attempting to negotiate, but the Blackfish refuses to abandon his home. What did you think about the conversation between Brienne and Blackfish? I was getting aggravated. And that's because I was being selfish about, you know, Brienne. But when Blackfish explains, like, I understand why the Starks want this battle. They want their home back. But this is my home. Mm -hmm. I understood that. But we all know that it's a death march or, you know. For him. Yeah. Yeah, he's basically saying... I'm going to I'm going to stay here and if this is my death, I choose it to be this mm-hmm. one fighting for my home. And you can kind of understand we were talking about the men from the old regime. He yeah. is one of the last ones. He's stubbornly saying, "I will go out like one of those last ones." Why are um, all these men stubborn? <laughs> I think this is part of what keeps them alive in this world and he has kept his people alive, his family alive for so long now. Yes, Sansa, and by extension, everyone else there is his family, but these people come first. That's like saying, do you fight for your home, your immediate family, and the people helping you here, or go off to fight for your extended family, you know, your cousins and your aunts and uncles and whatever, Yeah. for somebody else's home? Well, apparently he didn't come first for these people. 
And I don't think it's that he didn't care about them. He does make a point to tell Brienne, I feel for her. I really yeah. do. She's yeah, he wasn't being rude Catelyn's daughter, and I wish that I could do both, but I have to make this choice. And I really think he thought if he could stay there and inspire the men, they stood a chance. Mm-hmm. Because that would have meant... Jamie and his army losing a lot of people and having to undergo a long siege, and he was kind of counting on the fact that they wouldn't be able to do that. And even if they could, he would go out in a blaze of glory. We'll get back to that in a minute. Yeah. Turns out it didn't work out that way, but he did respect Brienne and the argument she was putting forth. That builds up Brienne's character even more, I think. Oh, yeah. That's what the highlight of this conversation was. Get a raven... Tell her I failed. Mm-hmm. It was deep. She has this really deep sense of duty and obligation. I mean, if you think about how she even wound up serving Catelyn in the first place, and now by extension her daughters, and she's fighting as though this was her own blood. She is maybe the last example of somebody we're seeing on this show who is a true knight. Well, I think and so. And who is actually wanting to fight for those ideals and yeah. keep them alive. Conversely, now we go over to a conversation between Jamie and Edmure. Well, before we even get there, Jamie, when Brienne's walking away, just to reiterate what you were saying about the way she thinks, she mm. does say, you do realize if this doesn't work, I will be your enemy. Yeah, honor compels me to fight for Sansa's kin. I thought that was a great line. <laughs> Again, her duty goes so far that in her heart, Mm-hmm. She would love to not fight against Jamie because of what's between them, but because of her oath that she took yeah. to Catelyn and now to Sansa. And it's all the way extended out to her uncle, the Blackfish, and his family. Yep. She doesn't even really know these people, but she will fight for them because that's the mission she's on right now. And exactly. if it means the two of them have to meet up, so be it. And that's clearly the last thing Jamie wants to happen. Right. But his response was perfect, too. This is the Jamie we love or want to love yeah. in this scene, in this tent. And we did talk about that, how he is the most evil when it comes to being inside of Cersei's circle of influence. Mm-hmm. That's when he does the bad things. And he is the most good when he's around Brienne and their promises. Yeah. Somewhere in between lies his day-to-day self, where he's constantly struggling And I think that it's important to note this fight was more highlighted in the books. When we get to this next scene where he is talking to Edmure. So in the show, he's trying to win Edmure's cooperation by tempting him to see his newborn son. Apparently he had time to consummate this marriage with the wife, who they did wind up actually liking each other against all odds, him and his fray wife. Not even newborn anymore, though. Actually, I don't even know. I think they might have said that the the child is not even born yet. No, it's been years. He said you've locked, you've had me locked up for years. He did say that. Yeah. You know, I read some conflicting information about this. That later on he says maybe it only felt like years, or oh. that it was a slip of the tongue. Well, either way, he's got this baby, and on the one sense, we don't even know if he's seen the baby yet. Is the bottom line because right. of his captivity. So he's tempting him with this. He even says he'll send him and his whole family to Casterly Rock, where they can live a pretty good existence as captives. You imagine a sort of Theon situation happening there? Right. Where he'll be raised right, but they will still, in essence, be hostages. 
and Edmure is not down for that situation. Edmure tries to fight back. He's ridiculing Jamie about his past, asking him how he lives with himself. He really doesn't stand a chance. Physically, verbally, there's nothing he can do. Jamie keeps going back at him, reiterating that point, telling him, bottom line, I will do anything to get back to Cersei. Kill anybody, whatever that takes. Along the lines of what I was saying, he's playing up his bad reputation Mm -hmm. as the Kingslayer to intimidate Edmure. In the books we see through his inner POV narration, he doesn't really want to kill anybody. Now, other people aren't as aware of the drastic change that's taking place internally for him. His personality and the reassessment of honor he's had since he lost his sword hand. But we get to see as the readers how much he's struggling with this and how much he wants to keep faith. He actually wants to fulfill his oath to not take up arms against the Starks or the Tullys. And you see that he does his best to prevent bloodshed. He does. In this situation. He lets Brienne do... You know, what she tried, he lets a lot of things happen. His plan that we'll get to works, and there was no bloodshed except for one. Mm-hmm. I, um, so in contrast, we, sh- we see the Jamie that we hate yeah. in this scene. And also, it's almost as if the, the writers needed to remind us, hey, you don't like this guy either. Mm-hmm. Because of all the things he did. By having Edmure pointed out, you know, like, look at you with your strong jawline and your, your beautiful gold armor <laughs> armor basically saying to us yes he's he's beautiful he's charming but don't forget he's an asshole he threw you know he threw a kid out the window he yeah we even this, had this, that line where they had yep. the callback line about doing anything for love to bring you back to that moment with exactly Brian. then we have him talking about how he's going to trebuchet Edmure's newborn child over the castle walls i mean anything he can say to bring that up But that's why I make this point, because if you're not looking farther into it, you might be like, oh, man, this is the Jamie I hate again. What is going on here? Can't we just get redemption for him? Can't we get him turned into that good character? But I think it is really over-exaggerated. If you look at what Jamie has left, when he had that conversation with the Blackfish, the Blackfish saw right through him. You're nothing at all anymore. You don't have your sword hand, you know, he has a more in-depth conversation with him in the books where Jamie actually tries to resolve it by proposing a trial by combat between him and the Blackfish. Mm-hmm. And whoever wins, wins the siege. He's like, how are you going to do that? You don't have a hand. You can't even fight me. I'll beat you any day of the week right now. Yeah. The Lannister's power is diminishing. I mean, the last thing he has is to talk his way out of it, essentially, in this tent with Edmure. He has to become a little bit Tyrion-like to find a way to resolve this as easily as he can. And so how he does that is by making him fearful, getting him to agree. We see that plan moving forward as he sends Edmure in to parley with the Blackfish. Then we go behind the walls and we see the Blackfish protesting. He's telling the soldiers not to allow Edmure in. Yeah. They're saying he is technically ruler of River Run. He's the Lord here. We have to let him in. Blackfish is like, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> You're letting him in because this is a trap. He has a knife to his throat. He's talking with a knife to his throat. There's nothing he can do. They're going to turn the castle over. Now, I really didn't understand. This is another part that I had problems with. You know that Edmure hasn't actually been running the castle through all of this. The wars that they're having, the way that they've... The Blackfish was the one to retake River Run, to stand up against the phrase, to say we're not surrendering... 
And yet when that moment comes, the soldiers take the side of Edmure. We have to let him in, even though he hasn't been the one in charge of us, and even though we know it's going to mean surrendering the castle and all of us. Why do you think they didn't side with the Blackfish and maintain loyalty to put up a fight here? I guess, and Blackfish hasn't been with these people. Yeah, but he has, though. That's what I mean. For a while now, in this war against the Freys and retaking um, the castle, he was the one to do that while Edmure was in captivity. And not only that, they know that the minute they let him in, it's not like they're just going to turn around and serve Edmure now, a different Tully. That would make sense. They know it's going to mean getting handed back over to the Freys. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know, because they're dumb. I mean, it is going to mean probably the majority of them don't die in a battle, but they will have to serve the phrase now. So, it, I don't know. It was a weird situation for them to agree to this. And, and he we, immediately backfired. Right. We do see the minute he comes in, he's like, all right, that's it. We're turning the castle over. That's what I agreed to. No bloodshed, but the Blackfish has to go. This is where we go down to the dungeons and we see the Blackfish helping Brienne and Pod to escape. And they ask him to come with them. You can still do this. Come fight for Sansa. And he decides to stay behind and fight. That really surprised me. The initial staying with his men to fight for the castle, I understood. But when it seemed all was lost and they were turning the castle back over, I thought he might change his mind and hop in that boat with them, at least live to fight another day for his family that wants him there. And he doesn't. He remains there. And then we cut to of this scene with Jamie asking where he is and them telling him he died fighting. Right. To me, that's really unlikely. After everything you built up to not see at least a second or two of a battle scene where he does die. Yeah, this is one of the two storylines that I felt fell off the cliff, which Game of Thrones never does. Like there was, it almost made no point to the Blackfish story. But at the same token, I don't know if Game of Thrones is going to play to the viewer. We've been spoiled this season where they yeah. play to what we want a lot and you know game of thrones doesn't do that so the other hand is i don't he's got to be dead because <clears throat> like what's it would make sense that his men right away after they said no to blackfish let the guy in and then they're like oh geez exactly what he said is happening and they he goes to fight and they're like no go you can go we right. fucked up and he escapes. Go. <clears throat> but how do you know that didn't happen off screen so how do you know we don't cut to, and he is down there, and the rest of the Tully men are still down there in the dungeons with him, and they... They're going to get Jamie? Sneak him out of there. Or he's hidden and they to f- kill Jamie. Right, and they fake his death. They bring some other body or whatever it is they do, and now the Lannisters and the Freys are no longer looking for the Blackfish. So now he's free to do whatever it is he wants to do. Or maybe it's to kill Walter Frey. If we kill Walder Frey, now we just eliminate this whole problem that we've had this whole time. Yeah, I think this is us hoping, just like we did with Sansa. Well, could be, but are you in the mood for a bit of a book spoiler? No. Okay, moving on then. (laughs) The last point in this episode is that right after Jamie is told that, he looks out over the river and he sees Brienne and Pod escaping on this little rowboat. Doesn't try to stop it smiles, waves them on. Another that was a nice, that was another touching, and it was like the writers again saying, but don't worry, you, you like Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking with our emotions. <laughs> but uh, I'm hoping that Blackfish's storyline isn't 
dead. But I'm just trying to uh, not be that little kid that always thinks that there's more cookies in the cookie jar. No, I understand that. And I think a lot of people have had a problem with how many characters they are bringing back this season. And I don't even think they're done with that yet, as we still have some unresolved storylines. I just feel it's odd for them to build up a character so much for an entire episode and part of what they are revealing about his character is that when he does go out it's going to be in an epic battle or fighting for the things he loves and then you have the perfect opportunity to show that here and instead they give him an off-screen death Mm -hmm. to me the only thing that makes sense would be because he didn't die now what's frustrating about that is because you've had so many one right after the next it's not going to be a surprise if we see him come back on screen. I don't know that I necessarily care so much about that, but I think if they had spaced out some of these stories a little bit better, you wouldn't have so many resurrections occurring back to back to back to the point where people are getting frustrated. It's great to bring back good characters, but they can't they can't get on board with it because it's just too much too fast. I say bring Ned back. Well, that's one that we know is never going to happen, right? Because we (laughs) saw the beheading. Yeah, I know. So that feels like the only time it's for sure now is if you actually see a beheading happen on screen. Speaking of brutal deaths, let's go over to King's Landing. The first scene, we see the faith militant led by Lancel arrive to take Cersei to see the High Sparrow. Your Grace, His Holiness the High Septon wishes to speak with you at the Great Sept of Baelor. His Holiness the High Septon is welcome to see me here in the Red Keep. Your Grace, this is not a request. It is a request, Cousin Lancel. You are asking me for something I'm refusing. The High Septon commands you. Are you sure you want to refuse him? He promised me I could stay in the Red Keep until my trial. He made no such promises. If you refuse to come of your own free will... Move aside, sir. Order your man to step aside or there will be violence. I choose violence. She refuses, says she chooses violence, and one one of them starts to attack. The mountain brutally kills him. Mm. I choose violence. I love that. Yeah. That's an act of war. But she showed her hand. And she was looking on with bloodlust, right? Waiting for Sir Robert Strong to just tear this man apart. And he literally did. And she watched every moment of it. You could see the other sparrows kind of cringing and looking away, second-guessing themselves now. I don't want to attack this guy. She's staring at him. She loves it. Well, I would too if I was her because... This is all, you know, she brought these guys back into power and they just fucked her. Another conflicting scene, because in one sense, we hate Cersei. We don't want to see her do Mm -hmm. well. We don't want to see this freak of a monster running around killing people. But in another sense, we also get a bad feeling from these religious fanatics who are coming in and imposing all sorts of crazy order and trying to sneak their schemes, get a hold of Tommen, who's not a bad person. So... It's kind of like, who do we root for in this scene? They make you feel very back and forth about it. I hate the Sparrow and his clan more right now. 
But we don't even really know what he's about yet. If he is about taking down the really evil people and trying to just revamp, make a new start, and make a better kingdom, is that worse than what Cersei has done? No, when you put it that way, no. But the way he's going about it, I don't like. It's sneaky right now. But to people that we see as essentially good, like Tom, and yeah, he's taking him over with his brainwashing and whispering in his ear, but he hasn't actually tried to harm him. I don't like extremists in life, and these guys are extremists. Absolutely. <laughs> and even if not the highest barrel, the followers are definitely people to fear. And I think we're going to find out by the end of this season definitively where this is going. Mm -hmm. But I think it was very put in your face this episode who you are meant to see as truly evil. Cersei oh. with her plans... This monster that there just could not be somebody more evil. He's been resurrected just to kill people in a brutal fashion. Mm. Later when they go over to Kyburn and all the dark shit he's up to, there is no gray in that camp right now. No. And they want you to know it to the point that even Tommen is making a kind of split from her. That feels a little like we're being set up to see her demise soon. However, we do get sort of a confusing scene when we then go to the throne room. Cersei tries to attend this royal announcement given by Tommen. She's denied to stand by his side from her uncle Kevin, acting as Hand of the King, going along with all of this stuff that the High Sparrow and Tommen are up to. Tommen announces the date of Cersei and Loras's trials. So that's where we know for sure that Marjorie has been spared from all of this because of the deal that they made. We also know for sure that he is taken on board to some extent, Tom, and that Cersei has done wrong. She's sinned and she needs to pay for it. I don't know if he totally knows what that's going to mean even now, but he has agreed to abolish this trial by combat as a means of resolving conflict and instead to give her a trial by seven. Is this a result of what she did earlier? Marjorie or Cersei? Cersei. I think it's a result of everything thus far. But if she didn't show her hand that way where she chose violence, do you think this would have happened right The now? moment they recreated the mountain, Okay. I think it was plain to see that's where she was going to go with it. I don't understand. First of all, when you said the point where Tommen is splitting from her, and anything Tommen does, I there's no respect. There's no... Like, there's nothing that he does where I think it's him, first of all, mm -hmm. doing it. And two, there's, you know, it's never like, oh, that's, uh, you know, even Tommen doesn't like her. Fuck Tommen. But what is it that's made Tommen split like this completely? Oh, yeah. He's definitely useless right now. These are not his decisions, whether it's 100% the High Sparrow, whether it's Marjorie's plan, some mixture of both. Well... Right now, Marjorie and the Sparrow's hand up his ass, making him talk, is the same hand. Right. But we often see that with these child rulers, whether it's kings or wardens or whatever they need to be. You know, they showed that with little Le Lady Leanna Mormont mm -hmm. just last episode. As in charge and fierce as she is for a young child of 10, she is consulting every five seconds with these maesters that she has at her side. When you're that young, you are heavily leaning upon your advisors and the people helping you to rule to make decisions. Well, yeah, because you don't have the life experience. Tommen was caught in that same position you saw from the very first. It was going to be Cersei, 
that it was going to be Tywin until mm-hmm. Tywin died. One person after a nef- the next has been stepping up trying to rule him. And here I think at least he's found an advisor who he sees as not being evil. As much as they are persuading him, he's allowing it to happen because he thinks essentially this person is good. They just want what's right. And he's also very smitten with Marjorie, so it makes more sense to go along with that. But I think that even he knows enough that this is going to be a very serious trial and that she could suffer some dire consequences and yet he's allowing it to happen. So that's why I say it's the first time that he's perhaps making a conscious decision that he's not going to side with her, regardless yeah, of what that means. that's true. Here we have another episode where it seems like Cersei is being completely defeated. Anything she's trying to do gets shut down. This is her last real hope. What she was relying on to get her out of the situation was the mountain to champion her. Yet even when that gets denied and she can't fall back on that, we see the final scene with Kyburn reporting to her about the rumor that she ordered him to investigate. Mm-hmm. Is and the he, rumor true? He says he's talked to the little birds and it is, quote, more, much more. What is this rumor, Jason? Well, we, uh, we kind of thought it up. Um, not that we're geniuses because a lot of people probably think this up, uh, that I think it's wildfire. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, this is her last result, resort. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> who's she going to use it on? Maybe, you know, is, it's a church that these guys all reside in, right? These in fuckers. the Sept. We don't know if they're actually all living there. We saw so many of them out in the streets. Right. Outside of it, but maybe that general area, if you took down the Sept and the surrounding streets, mm. which is pretty close to the main castle, but you might be able to target it. The thing about wildfire is it's so unpredictable. True. Fire, it's got its own. It's organic. Well, let's talk about wildfire for a second. It's I don't life. think it is any kind of spoiler to say we predict this to happen next. It's really being put in your face. As you say, she doesn't have many choices left to her. Plus, we saw that she is one of very few people who even know that there's still some left in the city because Mm -hmm. of the Battle of Blackwater. So let's describe what wildfire is, actually. It's created by people called the Alchemist Guild, which is an old order of pyromancers. The guild was once powerful, though in recent centuries the maesters rose in prominence and the pyromancers saw their influence dwindle. They still claim to possess vast secret stores of knowledge, but their abilities and influence have been greatly diminished. Now only a few of the old order remain. They claim to be able to transmute metals and create living creatures out of flame. In more recent times, they've only demonstrated the skill to create wildfire, which they call the substance. Now this substance, great care is taken when producing it. Trained acolytes prepare the product in bare stone cells, and once a jar is ready, it is immediately removed by an apprentice and brought to the vaults. The alchemists refuse to divulge exactly how it is created, claiming that it is done with magic spells. After they make it, they store it in clay pots, in these bare stone cells we talked about, under the alchemist guild hall, which is in King's Landing. Now each cell is built under a chamber full of sand, so that the sand could be emptied into the cell below immediately to extinguish the fire in case of accidents. 
This is because it's such a highly volatile material which can explode with tremendous force and burns with a fire so strong that water alone can't extinguish it, only in these really large quantities of sand. In fact, it's so combustible that it can be set alight by even bright sunlight. We wow. also know that it grows more volatile with age. When it actually lights up, the emerald green color is so bright that it can turn the air around it green. So it's an unstable material actually similar to real-life napalm or Greek fire. Uh, in real life, Greek fire was actually used by the Byzantine Empire in medieval times, and thus was actually a technology known to medieval people. Makes sense that George is using it in his book. In Game of Thrones, members of House Targaryen have used it in the past, and some worshippers of the eastern god of fire, the Lord of Light. We even saw Thoros of Myr who used to coat his sword with a thin layer of wildfire and then set it ablaze to scare his enemies in combat. So this substance, it's really, we see, a crazy weapon that you can't control. It's not right. like you can just set off this little kind of separate blaze of fire and take down one building like a demolition crew with it. You could essentially light the whole city up. Yeah, and we saw it in action. Uh, I forget what season it was. Yeah, Battle of Blackwater. Yeah. I mean, do you think, let's pretend for a second, do you think if they didn't have that fire that the Starks would have won that battle? He had a lot the of The Baratheons. People. The Baratheons, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, Stannis. Yeah, do you think they would have won? Yeah, I actually think that they would have. Their forces seem to outnumber and be better fighters. Yeah. King's Landing wasn't totally prepared for this. It was a good example of how the water didn't put it out. We saw it burning yeah. on top of the, the um, I don't know if that's ocean there or what the, no, bay, it's a bay. We saw it burning on top of there. I don't know, perhaps they led you to believe eventually the water could kind of quench it a little more than if it was on the land and catching onto these buildings. You just have the sense that it would get even more out of control if she decided to set it off there. It's like gasoline. It'll burn on top of water for, for a while, mm -hmm. but then slowly go out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's definitely where we're headed in King's Landing. Uh, I hope it's interesting because right now, I don't know, we've already seen the wildfire. I kind of want new shit. I mean, we got Bran out there we haven't seen in forever. He's the one with the magic. I agree <laughs> with you, and I was frustrated with so much of this episode, but I didn't mind the King's Landing stuff because we have been saying that we're headed for the implosion of it. True. How else are we going to take it down quickly and efficiently? We've only seen the wildfire once, and it was intriguing, dangerous, yeah. unpredictable. I think that's a great ending if that's how it is for King's Landing. Oh, um, you're right. You've sold me on it. If, it. if it happens this season, just do it quickly and be done with it. You know, mm -hmm. have the trial, have the wildfighter, light it all up in episode 10 and move on. Yeah, okay. Speaking of moving on, we have two more locations. Let's go to the one that we were least satisfied with in Bravos. Let's just talk about it and get it out of the way. Uh, after a changed performance in the play, Lady Crane returns to her chambers to find a wounded Arya hiding inside. She helps her to stitch up her wounds. She tells us that she learned this from the men she dated in the past, who she had to put a few holes in, quote-unquote. She tells Arya that thanks to her warning, she was able to mutilate fellow actor Bianca's face before she was kicked out of the acting troupe. So there, right there we saw, oh, she's not all roses. Absolutely. Between these horrible men that she dated, wasn't afraid to talk about how she had to stab him a few times. Yeah. And 
didn't just get Bianca kicked out, but mutilated her. That's pretty intense. Yeah, she wasn't all that. You know, how come we had to watch the play again? That's a they third were, time. Yeah, they were highlighting that <laughs> Lady Crane had changed her performance to take Arya's advice. Oh, okay. Where Arya said that Cersei wouldn't just be sad she had lost her son. She would be angry and want to kill the people that did oh, it to him. All right. And she actually took that advice, and it worked. It, it enhanced her performance. Okay, I don't, now it makes sense. You know, maybe just to highlight that relationship because they were going to take this character away from us very soon. As much as she clearly has done bad things, we're supposed to see her as a warm person who is introduced to help Arya out. She stitches her up. She gives her this milk of the poppy so that she can sleep Opium. and get better. She offers Arya to even join the acting troupe and come with her. But Arya says that would put them in too much danger. And anyway, she plans to travel west of Westeros to see the edge of the world, which we already talked about. But as predicted, as soon as Arya starts to recover, the waif arrives and kills Lady Crane. Before we go on to the many, many problems that exist in this scene, Arya goes right to the person that they already have a hit out. Mm -hmm. They're going to know exactly where Lady Crane is, and Arya has to know that by staying there, she is inviting death upon Lady Crane. Yeah, it's just another stupid move on her part. Somebody, I thought she grew. Somebody she cares about put her right back into that danger. She was killed in a horrible fashion by the waif. And because she sewed up some drunken uh, relationship spats that ended up in these little stab wounds, she is able to heal Arya's multiple gut wounds that were pretty bad to the point that Arya is now able to be running through streets and jumping and rolling and she slides stomach first downstairs now I know her like stitches rip slide. and she start bleeding but essentially she is able to be very nimble and quick yeah. after it seems like just one day of a few stitches in recovery uh, it didn't make sense this whole part doesn't make sense unless there we get more storyline. Maybe Jacken like follows her or something because it feels like a, a wasted season and a half with the many faced God. Yeah, well, you know, I've heard other people now on podcasts and online saying, Yeah, there were all these wild and crazy theories that people had about Arya, and we always knew that that wasn't going to happen, those were yeah, too extreme. The fight club, and, and, and I'm glad that it didn't end that way. No. The reason people were coming up with all of these crazy theories is because Arya was acting completely out of character the last, last episode, episode yeah. doing things that really didn't make sense, you know, not being cautious, not taking her sword with her, not paying attention to her surroundings, throwing money around that it doesn't make sense for her to have, plus hmm. just little things that the directors could have been putting in as red herrings for us, but fuel to the fire that... She was, you know, she's left-handed in the show, but using her right hand several times in that episode, such as handling the money with it. She was displaying some of Jockin's token mannerisms, the smirk and the way he cocks his head, walking around with his hands behind his back. She was doing all of those things. So you put all of those things together and you come up with, this does not seem like the Arya that we have become so intimately acquainted with for six seasons. She just would not act like this. Right. And thus we are left no other choice but to believe it's got to be somebody else or something more is happening here. These fan theories were amazing. Um, they were fun to, to read and also like get into it. The whole fight club with the fact that 
you never saw the waif. Like, no one ever acknowledged the waif being there. Any other characters? Mm-hmm. Or Jacken. You know, um, <clears throat> we, you and I, we almost were going to do a podcast midweek last week. Because we were just discussing things. And I came up with a, a whole other storyline. And we were going to call it... What were we going to call the episode? Uh, Crackpot. Crack <laughs> and uh, I forget exactly what we were talking about. Because we got detailed. But essentially that Jockin was uh, the, the guy that trained her a long time ago. Yeah, the whole Jockin is Serio theory. Which yeah. was considered very crackpot. But floating around a lot out there. Because of the fact that... Serio was with Arya almost from the beginning of the storyline in season one. Mm-hmm. He was there as somebody to help train her, teach her how to fight, keep her safe. He's very, very similar to a Jockin type of character. Right. I know they had some pretty big differences. He was also from Bravos, And where we last see him when he saves Arya by telling her to get out and he's left to fight Marin Trant... They pan off screen. You never actually see him die. Right. It's assumed because you, know, you don't see him for six episodes. But S- it's seasons. not completely crazy to think that the reason that maybe we didn't see him is because he actually was here, but as somebody else. So as Many soon as times. you lose Serio, you gain Jockin for Arya's storyline. Right. Well, and we, in a weird way. We even went deeper. We were saying maybe Ned had spoken to the Many-Faced Gods, Jockin, mm-hmm. and said, I need you to protect my daughter. Mm-hmm. So in her journeys, there's characters that we didn't even pay attention to that kind of helped her. Uh, we were not thinking the Hound, but no, there was other no. characters that could have been Jockin in different faces, yep. pushing her, like the guy on the boat mm-hmm. that took, and on the ship took the coin. that took her the, the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, why was, we were thinking, why was Jockin trapped like who? Why would Jockin get trapped by these these hooligans and be in like a little in that wheelhouse? And he wheelhouse, also yeah. actually implied that he was there by choice, and if he wanted to be out, he would be. And the reason he was there was he had promises to keep, quote yes. unquote, which looking back seems very peculiar. And you know, even if Ned hadn't known that he was communicating with somebody from an assassin's guild, because people say, why would he do that? A man like Ned. Perhaps he just thought he was hiring somebody to keep her safe. Um, it now seems really far-fetched, the whole Serio is jocking thing. But but that know, idea was perfect. It was a we fun right theory to go along with and to think about. It's that not- wouldn't be as bad. Like That wouldn't be as uncharacteristic for Game of Thrones as the Fight Club theory, our, our theory that we just said. I don't think that would have been off-base too much. Right. Now, the Fight Club theory that Arya is sort of just standing out in the middle of the street fighting herself... Essentially, Mm -hmm. onlookers are watching her thrashing around and beating herself. Doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but we did get a listener write in to expand upon that theory in a way that I thought was actually plausible and very interesting. Yeah, we got a lot of write-ins, and these were great theories. I love this. So Robert wrote in and said he hadn't heard anyone venture this take on the theory, the Fight Club theory. Everyone was talking about... Was the waif dressed as Arya or Jackin? He wasn't sure if you could assume the face of somebody who was alive still or if they had to be dead, which we also debated upon because we had seen right before Arya was blinded her pulling off the faces from Jockin and one of them was her own. Right. So we said that's how it could be possible that you're seeing Jockin or somebody else posing as Arya. Either way, 
He says what no one seems to be talking about is previously, Jockin had Arya drink the water from the fountain. He said it would be harmless to no one. What if the last few episodes were of Arya with her internal struggle, with both the Waif and Arya as different aspects of her as she fights the poison? If the Waif wins, she truly becomes no one and a faceless man. If Arya Stark wins, she dies in real life. So, it's the Fight Club theory, but it's happening in her head. Essentially, she's perhaps just lying there somewhere in the house of black and white, fighting the poison this whole time, which could consume her. She has to mentally win that battle in order to come out of it alive. If not, she's no one, and the poison kills theory. her, just That's as great Jockin said it would. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes sense where we said, okay, this is a great story for Arya, right? But why did we spend an entire season seeing bits and pieces of what's so important, this culmination of her fighting the waif, if she doesn't turn out to be, let's say, somebody we already know, somebody from Arya's past who wanted a hit on her. Mm -hmm. That could be fun, but it wasn't. Waif just wound up being some normal person. She has to have this epic battle with the waif, which she did, but it happened on screen, so it wasn't even to have that huge battle scene. Um, if she has to learn something really amazing about the faceless men to become one of them, which she doesn't really learn anything that great and decides at the end she doesn't want to become a faceless person. So it was really hard to see the whole point of the storyline and us showing, getting shown these fight sequences with the waif and these very small developments. But if it was because it was happening in her mind internally, she had to overcome that struggle, and it really was a matter of life or death if she won, mm -hmm. that to me would have been epic Game of Thrones. Well, I still think that that was from Robert. Yes. I still think this, this is me hoping, but this might still be true because we see her saying, you know, it was a good saying. She was like, I am, I'm not no one. I am Arya Stark, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And then Jockin smiles and she walks out. Mm -hmm. I thought that the smiling and she walks out, like it just felt shallow, right? Anticlimactic. Yeah. And I was like, now after all this, he just lets her walk out. But what if... Next episode, probably not next episode, the, the following one. Once she walks out, she wakes up. And what Robert just said is true. Mm -hmm. And she's in there, House of Black, and there's Jockin. Yep. That would be hip. Mm -hmm. So that, Roberts isn't out yet. I, I don't, he says that, you know, I guess I'm out because <laughs> this, doesn't, this doesn't really work anymore. But I am not convinced that we've seen the whole thing with her. I'm hoping it not because this feels wrong. Really wrong. They didn't explain any of those things about why she was acting so uncharacteristic mm -hmm. of herself. They didn't even show us the epic battle of actually fighting with the waif after that candle was blown out. Right. And then she comes back and after all that, she decides she doesn't want to be no one. Just for mm -hmm. Jockin to turn around and let her go. Yeah. You know, yeah, we wanted her to come to the point where she says, I'm Arya Stark and I'm going back to Westeros. We did not need a whole season to get there. So... Either Game of Thrones completely wasted our time and did things that fall outside of the parameters of their storyline and the character arc, or we just haven't seen it all yet. I'm hoping we haven't seen and it I'm all. And I'm going to go with that. Especially Jackin wasn't... Like, if you remember how Jackin was two seasons ago, he was awesome. This this Jackin that we know is it's just not awesome. <laughs> but also, to go back on last episode... And how uncharacteristic she was of flashing the money and like mm -hmm. just standing, looking outside. 
at the water, like, hmm, hmm, life is beautiful. And then this old lady comes up. Right away, I would not trust anyone because I know the many-faced God and I know that someone's after me. Now, the episode prior to that, we saw the clip where she goes into that room mm-hmm. where the ending battle is. She lights the candle yep. and she has needle. And you said, this is, you didn't know where she was. We thought maybe she I was I thought still she there. was in the house of black and white, but she wasn't far off. It was just no. some little place there in Bravo. So. Right. And you had said, we just got to do this one more time. You were right. You said that she beat her once. She mm-hmm. beat her blind. So she's going to blow out the candle and fight her where neither of them can see and she's going to win. So the whole cat like waiting for her part was right. My only thing, and this is a stretch, is that she was trying to, when she was acting uncharacteristically, she's trying to bait her, mm-hmm. which would have been fine if she was smoother with it, if she didn't get stabbed like that. If she went through the, the coin thing mm-hmm. and then she's looking out at the water and then she looks and she sees the old lady, then starts running. And then gets to that room and then does the right. killing. Then we would have been like, oh, well, that makes sense. She was baiting her. And if that was the goal, why couldn't she have had Needle with her the whole time? Why did she have to leave it inside of the cave so she had nothing to defend herself when this old lady does stab her? Well, I think the not having Needle would be fine because it keeps the waif uh, thinking that she doesn't have a weapon. She has the upper hand. So as she's running, she goes into this room. She's trapped. And she's like, <sighs> she's in, and there's only one mm-hmm. candle lit. Then she bends down, takes out needle when the woman I think walks in. That with the she still would have thought cuts. she had the upper hand. There was no reason to not have any kind of weapon to defend yourself, even a little dagger in her back pocket. I mean, that's what we were saying. That if you take out last episode, it all kind of would make sense. But the things she was doing and the way she was acting, even if it was to bait the waif here. Mm-hmm just don't quite add up right and it was a little bit frustrating but the scene would have been more epic if she didn't have needle and then she bent down once the wave walked in pulled it out cut the candle and then beat her ass yeah which is what she did and we should have had sound effects in black but we don't even get to see that fight happen yeah so if the whole thing is, as they said, it turns out that Jockin was actually testing both of them which we did theorize that as well you know, it turns out that in that scene, Arya was really Arya, and the waif was really the waif. We were wrong about that. <coughs> but we were right about the fact that Jockin was essentially testing both of them, the waif as well. So now you have his two students where he's kind of hoping that Arya is going to defeat her the whole time. But the epic showdown happens off screen. I don't know how I feel about that. Instead, they have this whole chase scene through the streets while it was visually cool. And, and awesome to see, it was almost like, are you even thinking clearly? Mm-hmm. Because why would she be able to do all of these awesome things with the injuries she has right now? It she was fucked just up. felt thrown in there instead of this harsh battle between her and the waif where you don't know if she's going to live and she right. is getting stabbed now instead of earlier. Yeah, and that would have been So good. you have to fear for her life. And then we had the cliffhanger and then she wakes up and it turns out she gets back to the House of Black much and White. Much better, much tighter. I, I don't know, just the sequence felt very odd. But we do wind up in this place where she goes back to Jockin and she realizes she is herself again and she wants to go back home to Westeros. So let's just see before we go any further what happens with that next week and if we see any more of Arya. 
Uh, we had a few other write-ins just for the sake of time. We're not uh, saying it in the podcast, but thank you for writing in. Christina did write back to you, and just keep them coming. We love them. Yeah, to bring up one thing about that, I want to thank Stacy for pointing out she was looking for us on Twitter and not able to find us. Coffee Clatch Crew is how you find us. However, on Twitter, just look for CKC Podcast. You don't have to spell the whole we thing We had to out. do smaller characters so that it doesn't take up the character count. So thank you for that. We hope you continue to look for us on Twitter, Facebook, anywhere else you want to contact us. We're going to move into our last location of Marine. With the Red Priests on their side and spreading the propaganda about Danny as a savior, Tyrion and Varys see Marine returning to life. There's a conversation where Varys warns Tyrion not to trust the priest, though. I call that a successful gambit, would you? Look around. This city has come back to life. You made a pact with fanatics. I did, and it worked. If you shaved your beard with a straight razor, you'd say the razor worked. That doesn't mean it won't cut your throat. Spoken like a man who has never had to shave. <laughs> I'm going to miss you. I know. I hope you're right about this expedition of yours. If I don't return, you'll know I was wrong. We need friends in Westeros. And that he's leaving for Westeros to find more allies and ships. Still going back to his very old mistrust for anything magic, any kind of sorcery, but turns out that he really is right, who is good advice to give to Tyrion. He says his mission is to go find allies and ships, probably because of what we've been saying, that Danny can come over, she can conquer, she can maybe help us to defeat the immediate enemy that we have, but she's not really going to have any allies, and with the type of army she is bringing with her, nobody is going to like her. Nobody is going to want her as a queen and a ruler. So he needs to kind of go grease the wheels and find out who could be for her and actually want to stand with her. I see it as only a couple of potential obvious allies. Who do you think he's going to talk to? I don't know. That's one thing I I actually I haven't even thought about it because so much happened. Um, I don't know. I don't know what he's up to. Well, we know one of the places has got to be the Iron Islands. Oh, I hope Since not, they're not normally allied with anybody and we do see Fionn and, and Yara coming over here, um, I'm thinking one of the other major places that fell off this year that's not allied with anybody right now and still has a very fresh army is Dorne. So is this where we finally get that storyline to come back in and work its way into the plot? Maybe, yeah. That could be really great. They've always sort of been for the Targaryens. Now we go back over to Tyrion. Just to note another change from the books, Sir Barristan didn't die in the fighting way back when, like we saw him die in that um, alleyway battle. Mm -hmm. He was still alive in the books and continuing to rule the city in Danny's name instead of Tyrion. Tyrion had arrived in Marine, but he hadn't met Danny yet. In the TV show, it's much better because... Obviously, it's great to see Tyrion on scene. We get him building up these relationships, learning about the place he's in and the culture. But it's also worse because it's going to be his mistake, his fault for what he let happen. We see this scene where Tyrion is trying to convince Grey Worm and Missandei to drink and tell jokes. A lot of people didn't like that scene. I didn't mind it. On the one hand, I was super frustrated. 
because there's so many important things to cover and places to see. They're rushing through certain storylines at a breakneck pace, and then other places, they're so clearly putting the brakes on so that they can catch up yeah. to the rest of the characters and keep them all on the same page. And this is one spot that I was feeling like that. We already got a scene with Tyrion trying to get these two to drink and have fun. And what is the point of having another one and wasting more time now? I was kind of hysterically laughing at some of the things they were saying. Yeah. The lines were very good. It's great to see Tyrion as this sort of character, but I wanted a deeper purpose. It was a little bit of a relief. And also we got to know Grey Worm and the other chick with the nice boobs better. <laughs> and... Uh, don't forget that we saw her boobs like two seasons ago. Um, I think that was that was the point to because like Grey Worm is just kind of this statue d- dude for us, and we kind of got to know uh, his personality a little bit, and we liked him a little more. Yeah, well, they highlighted in some of the behind the scenes things that in the books it was a very slow building back to humanity for Grey Worm. As an Unsullied, we talked about all of the things that they go through, even more than what we see on TV, to get to a place where they are essentially robotic, non-human soldiers. They don't Mm -hmm. even feel any pain. They don't associate themselves as real people. It would take time to regain that sense of self. And perhaps that's what they're trying to show us here, a sense of humor is a significant step back to becoming a real person, whereas it's a little bit easier for Masande to jump in and what does that show us about her character? I, I don't know if it's going to mean more, but I'm trying to just roll with it. It It's further complicated, I think, by what comes next. Yes. So all of Marine just felt like a misstep for me tonight where I have actually been enjoying it a lot this season. So this good time is interrupted when a fleet sent by the masters arrives to attack the city and recover their property. It is the people of Yunkai, Astapor, and Volantis, the slave masters. When they look out and you see all those ships, did you for half a second think it was the Greyjoy ships? And you were like, oh shit. I did. Oh shit, they're here. Until I saw them firing, I definitely did. And even through to the end of the episode, I thought we were going to see the Greyjoys on the tail end of that coming to help save them. We may still see that. We might. And as the fleet bombards Marine into the night, first we see Grey Worm instructing Tyrion how best to handle this. He tells him, we have to stay here, retreat to the pyramid so that we're in a place of defensive strength. He really does know battle strategy. It does come in handy here where they're in trouble on this front. Yeah. But also, we see them inside of the room hearing a sound on the roof yeah i think almost immediately i thought it was a dragon i knew for i knew right away i they tried to throw us off by showing that uh these fire things that are being thrown from the ships are Mm -hmm. hitting the pyramid yep but it just sounded like a landing and i was like oh shit it's a dragon like i knew straight up and i didn't mind that i loved it i was like oh shit well i loved it too because i thought it was going to be the other two dragons that Tyrion had unchained oh and I thought what a great way to make this introduction into the two dragons coming back them needing the other two dragons not just having it be Drogon who comes in to save the day Mm -hmm. and perhaps Tyrion continuing to build a relationship with one of the dragons yeah which would have been epic that would have been awesome um instead we have another scene where Drogon is just carting Danny around, dropping her off like he's an airplane service, uh, flies off before we even get to see him, 
Danny walks in. Okay, epic entrance. I love it. It was epic. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't do anything. She just stands there. And I, then the scene ends. I think it's good that she didn't say anything. Because there was not, not enough time for her to say anything. That didn't feel weird to you to end no. the scene on that note? No, the kids are in trouble. I loved it. Well, a look from her then. Like just Yeah, there was a look. Nothing. No, I, I felt nothing. a look. I felt a look. And then they showed all of them and they're like, <gasps> Mom caught us. You know? Um, <sighs> I don't know. I'm excited about this. This got me excited. I did not like it. I just hope a dragon doesn't get killed. But um, we're going to see some dragon fights right now. This is going to be... We're going to see... Not to jump ahead, but next episode is going to be the big fight in the north. And we're going to see the big fight here. And the dragons are going to get down. More than one dragon? Because this was your great chance to bring the other two back. Like, why yeah. did they go this way? Yep. More than one. I'm just going to say it because I want it to happen. I'm willing it. Mm. I, I really would have liked it to go in that direction. But... You know, the thing is, you can say, we might still get more. We might still get more. We only have two episodes left in this season. Right. So let's go ahead and look real quick at our sneak peek because it's very obvious what's coming in episode nine. Right. Right before you do that, just a few more comments. One, I love how Tyrion right away was like, I messed up. I made a mistake. Like he admitted to it. I don't know. I, I just, I love Tyrion so much that I guess I'm hanging on every word, but... Right away, he was like, I messed up. And you don't see that often in Game of Thrones. No, you don't. And I love his character, but I feel like he's in deep shit. This episode not only highlighted the mistake that he made, but how it turns out he doesn't know this region. He doesn't know their culture. He didn't have anything under control. He has nothing to show. He didn't even stop the attack from coming, the war from coming. I mean, right. she's back, and it's chaos there. So Let's not forget this is her fault, though. It's not his. Oh, sure, but <laughs> I don't think she's going to see it that way. No? Okay. And I think he could be in trouble here, especially when Grey Worm and Masandi are like, we were trying to tell him that none of this is the right idea. Varys leaves right at the moment that he needs him the most. I don't know why they picked this exact moment to send Varys away, because that yeah, was played that very been... differently in the books. Okay. I don't think maybe this is the reason for that scene with the jokes. I hope that they don't do the pointing the fingers so and telling mom it was his idea. I hope that they're kind of on his side, not like fully on his side because that wouldn't be that would be uncharacteristic, but like they would explain what happened and yeah, help him a little bit. Yeah. I was hoping we would get a little more of that relationship building so that it could be that by the time she returned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got some jokes cracked, but that doesn't necessarily bring somebody over to your side, especially people like this where you need to build their respect. So I was just picturing a scene where they get to see Grey Worm and Masandi, the relationship that he instinctually has with one of these dragons that they take to him. There's something about him. And, oh, our queen will love that. You know, she might not agree with all these other things that he did, but he's trying and look, even the dragons like him. That may still come into play. So I wanted all that to happen before Danny returned. We spent so much time having her dick around in Bay's Dothrak with these storylines why couldn't you have these things happening before she got back? Um, they I might know. run down to the dragons and, and she'll say, no, we can't use them. And he'll be like, no, we can. And then run down there, you know, full of speed and, and, and uh, you know, just adrenaline. And she's going to be like, what? 
Well, know, how great dope. would it be if they went down together and she's thinking I mean. she's going to get them and they, he does. That's they what I mean. almost start to be like, uh, not, you know, they'll never be against her, but she can't control them at all like she can control mm-hmm. Drogon. She's been getting used to this now, them doing what she wants. And so they almost start to get upset and then he steps in and one of them responds to him. Yeah, and he says, we need you. That'd be dope. <laughs> My father never let me have a dragon when I was younger. <laughs> no, I think this scene could be awesome. It could be like, no, it could you. be really cool. And then they bowed and he goes up on them. And then she's like, oh shit. And then they kick some ass. And then we're like, oh shit. And, you know, <laughs> that would be great. And that's what's going to happen. So overall, I feel like you enjoyed this episode a little more than I did. I found a lot to be happy about in the midst of. No, maybe it's because I still have uh, hope. I'm thinking. Game of Thrones won't do this to us. There's more to this Arya story, and we're going to find out. Daenerys is going to get on her dragon, and the other dragons are going to come into play, and this is there's going to be a payoff for this. We're going to get our payoffs. I'm mm-hmm. just hoping on that. And if that's the case, this episode wasn't that bad. So what is your raven rating then? But I still gave it 5.5 ravens because there's no way I could grade it as well as the other ones. Yeah. But I still have hope. I was never bored. But some of the storylines fell short to me. Yeah. I'm still thinking that they will sum those storylines up for us in a nice little bow and we'll be happy. Yeah, my scale has been a little bit higher than yours. So I said six, but I feel like I'm falling around the same emotional scale as you. So perhaps I could go to 5.5 because I really was... uh, less pleased with this episode even than you. Mm -hmm. I agree with some of the criticisms of it. Quote, expediency at the expense of quality, as Eric Kane of Forbes.com says. Or, you know, the storylines were at a different pacing. Some of them rushing ahead at a breakneck speed. Some of them slowing way down to where it feels really out of sync with itself. They were pulling some material from earlier books to put here into season six so that the character arcs don't quite line up the way they should. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Egner from the New York Times.com says, all in all, a man is underwhelmed, <laughs> which I kind of had to agree with. I do still have hope, like you said, for certain areas, perhaps because there is no book now. There is no canon. So in my mind, I can imagine that anything is going to happen next episode. I don't have to be restricted by knowing what comes next. That's nice. I am really hopeful for our penultimate episode nine. We know that it's going to be an epic battle, and that should be really great. One of our two favorite directors kind of fell short this season. Yeah, a little bit. I guess. I mean, I still don't hate this episode Nearly as much as the Walking Dead episode. Yeah, but seven and eight were a little bit weak, kind of. Comparatively. For him, for what I expected of him. Still my favorite season, though. Now, we got Miguel Sapochnik, though, for nine and ten. Mm -hmm. So my biggest hope is that nine and ten are just going to blow us out of the water. And they will. Let's hope that now that these directors no longer have a lot of book to go off of, this doesn't turn into a regular type of TV show where they let us down often. Yeah, I I think they're falling victim to some of the things we were worried about. But overall, this is still 
one of my favorite seasons. It has moments where it could be the best, mm -hmm. moments where it feels like they're just tripping so hard. Um, so we got to wait and see how they wrap it up in the last two episodes. Speaking, though, of our episode eight, who owned the throne this week? The Hound. My favorite scenes. He's a badass. Yeah. I love him. Uh, even when he was a dick, there's something about him that I loved. Mm-hmm. The Hound, hands down. Okay, I'm going to say Thoros owned for me. He says, we are a part of something larger than ourselves when he's talking to the Hound. And the way they're trying to recruit him mm -hmm. to go with them for this bigger cause, I really enjoyed that. Also, just a little background on Thoros. He was a native of the free city of Mir and a red priest for the Lord of Light. He was dispatched to the Seven Kingdoms to convert the Westerosi king, which was Robert at the time. Turns out the only thing they had in common was a fondness for drinking, which they wound up doing together and liking True. each other. But he soon abandoned his faith and became just a renowned tourney fighter and carouser. <laughs> Eventually, he joined up with Beric on his mission to arrest the mountain and bring him to justice and had a conversion of sorts. Yeah. You know, where he was able to bring Beric back to life. He started to really believe he became his right-hand man in the Brotherhood. Just like the idea of his whole storyline. And now on top of the Hound joining up with them, it could be really cool to see where they go. So, upcoming, let's do our sneak peek through the heart tree. Episode 9, as we said, is entitled Battle of the Bastards. We know that it will be a... Bastard bowl. <laughs> yes, the bastard bowl. So we will get one of the predicted bowls. Yeah. It will be a full 60-minute episode, as we said, directed by Miguel Sapochnik, written by Benioff and Weiss. The synopsis is, as the Starks prepare to fight, Davos loses something dear. Ramsay plays a game, Danny faces a choice. We're going to get two battles in this, I hope. We're going to get the epic northern battle. Yep. Uh, they better not leave us hanging with Daenerys' shit. Well, they say she, she's in the synopsis, so I think that's exactly it. You're going to get only the North and Danny in this episode, everything else wrapped up in episode 10. Now, with this Northern one, I hope we get a mid-battle Braveheart moment mm -hmm. where Littlefinger and his peeps come in halfway through the battle from the left side on their horses, mm -hmm. just like in Braveheart, and help kick ass. That'd be awesome. Well, we predicted that. He'll come in right at the right moment, and also... One of the people who appeared to be on the Bolton side, perhaps the Umbers, will turn around and start fighting for the Starks. Surprise, we never left you. That'll be their in to get inside of the castle, which is how they will eventually defeat Ramsay. And this won't happen, but wouldn't it be cool if Jamie comes from behind and is like, the Jamie we want? <laughs> that won't happen. But. Well, that would be unrealistically yeah. cool, but it's nice to imagine that. Davos loses something dear. They make you think he's going to lose something in the battle, but I think prior to them fighting, this is where we are going to get his realization that Shireen was burned okay, and that he had lost her definitively. He kind of always knew that, but I think you might see that okay. um, as they're preparing to fight. And the Danny faces a choice is probably going to be what does she do with her advisors and how does she proceed with the whole kingdom of marine and 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 maybe we'll see the gray joys coming there maybe i'm excited all we know about episode 10 is that it's titled the winds of winter it's going to be 69 minutes long the longest so far in game of thrones history and we are predicting that will wrap up the remainder of our storylines bring the beginning of white walkers coming to the rest of westeros and bringing winter with them 
people are up in arms that uh, s- season nine and ten, for the longest time, and still season ten didn't have a synopsis, and they were like upset. But I was like, what's the big deal? First of all, the synopsis doesn't give you enough. It never tells you anything, and, and their trailers <laughs> tell you everything. So. Uh, why are people so angry about that? It's just weird. Well, between that and there's really no secrets hardly left in the Game of Thrones universe. So I think that wherever they can hold something back, they yeah. will continue to do so. I still think they're secrets. We just don't know they're coming. One of the biggest secrets is when is the actual Winds of Winter going to come out? Yeah. <laughs> we Probably heard be. some good news about George and his editor. Uh, I am praying shortly into our off season that will be released, and so we can talk about that a little bit on a future podcast. Uh, on that, I'm a little concerned that we have two seasons left, and we haven't had this epic battle with the Walkers, and we already know that season seven will only be seven episodes. It will, but I think that's part of the culmination we've been building to this whole time. So they, they have to save that for towards the end. I'm of course. thinking you will get that in season seven. And season eight. And into season eight, and season eight will resolve what comes after. Because I don't think you're just going to get a big battle and either they win or they don't. That's not very George. You no. want to see what happens after. How is the world resolved? But At less, least in some small part. Right. But you can't see that's. This is my concern. You can't say that's not very George because it will not be George. He hasn't written those books yet. No, but he's told them the major storylines of the one that just came out. And I'm assuming by stretching it into seven and eight, he will at least be able to tell them what he is intending for all of these characters so that they won't be ending on a totally different note than George's vision. I hope so. And if there's things you don't like, that is the upside that we still do have the books to look forward to, which could be different in many ways than the TV. I agree. So that was episode eight. I hope, you know, I'm guessing a lot of you didn't really enjoy episode eight but i'm hoping that i was able to pull out some of the good parts and maybe you'll look back on it and enjoy it a little more did it work for you did i can did i make you like it a little more yeah and like i said there was parts of it that i did enjoy and i hope we highlighted those and gave you some fun facts overall it's probably my least favorite episode of the entire series thus far um but by saying that it's still blows away anything else that's on TV. It's still the best show out there. Mm -hmm. And if this was the worst of Game of Thrones, I still really enjoyed it. I was really entertained. I was very frustrated by certain parts of it, but um, it's what makes it a fun podcast, I think. Yeah, To to look into all that and talk about all that. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to us. If you have further thoughts about this, things that we missed, or predictions for what's coming next, please write in and let us know. Contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. And please go to our Twitter, uh, CKC Podcast, Facebook, like us on Facebook. And also, most importantly, go to iTunes, give us a five-star rating, leave us a comment. Let's keep building and let's do some more shows and keep it going. Yeah, if you just want to select the stars, that's fine. But we will ask you, please, encourage you to write, even if it's just a short review, to give us some feedback so we know how we're doing and how to make things better in the future. And we will see you next week for our Episode 9, Battle of the Bastards review. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me! Thank you.
Please hang up and try again.